0: The Franc-Commune has reached an agreement in principle with the province. Meagre juror compensation means Ontarians rarely get a jury of their peers. Is Canada getting another EV battery and car plant? Families of the plane crash PS752 victims push Ottawa to take actions against Iran. And the eldest son of Al Jazeera's Gaza bureau chief, also a journalist himself, has been killed in an Israeli strike in southern Gaza. Good morning. It's Monday, January 8th. I'm Nora. Here's your headlines. We start this morning with some good news. After massive and historic strikes, the franc Commune, an alliance of Quebec unions representing 420,000 public sector workers, has reached an agreement in principle with the province. The proposed contract sees gains on both pay and working conditions. CBC's Joe Bongiorno and Erica Mornis report that the coalition of unions has accepted a 17.4% increase in salary over five years, with a 6% increase for the first year. The unions say that it's, quote, the largest salary bump since 1979, retroactive to April 1st, 2023, unquote. At the start of negotiations, the Quebec government had proposed a mere 9% increase in salary. The unions were originally looking for 20%, but they compromised with 17.4%, which is significant considering that the last proposal from the government was just 12.7% over five years. Borgiorno and Morris report this, quote, The Common Front says the agreement also includes gains on working conditions, including the right to a fifth week of vacation after 15 years of seniority, phased retirement extended to seven years, an additional day off for expecting parents, and higher contributions to health insurance plans from employers, unquote. Of course, the deal still needs to be voted on by the members. General assemblies are being organized from January 15th until February 19th to vote on the offer. There are more than 300 union locals affiliated with the franc and they will all have the chance to vote. Now, what isn't clear to me is how the rest of negotiations have gone for issues that are not sector-wide. The franc commune deals only with very broad issues that impacts everyone, and that's why we're talking about salaries and pensions and days off. But there are still a lot of other local issues that are workplace-specific that are either settled or still need to be worked out. I'm not sure. I guess if a vote is coming to General Assemblies, it's been worked out, but that's silent in the article. I'll also note that, oh my God, not just the francoman, but the teachers also settled. I haven't seen details of that settlement yet, but I got to say, my kids have been off school for six weeks and this morning is the first time they're back. I have not been able to wait for this moment. So congratulations to all of the workers for this historic level militancy that we're seeing, which is being accompanied by significant wage increases. Next, the Toronto Star is reporting on Ontario's dismal compensation for jurors and the impact that it's having on justice. If you serve on a jury in Ontario, you will receive among the lowest rates of pay in the country. If you're lucky to be picked, you'll be paid nothing for the first 10 days of service and then $40 daily from days 11 to 49. After that, $100 a day for 50 days and beyond. The piece quotes Toronto criminal defence lawyer Sid Freeman, who reminds us of the obvious impacts of this system, that, quote, the poor are, by nature of their poverty, rendered ineligible, especially for long trials. And in an environment that can't produce diverse juries, not just in racial background, but in socioeconomic background, the people who are most often subject of the criminal justice system never get a jury of their peers. That's a completely untenable way to run the justice system, unquote. Reporter Jock Galant notes that there's a clash between the fact that people are paid so little and that the law doesn't compel employers to continue to pay people their salaries. It, quote, leaves a patchwork system where some workers can serve on juries while still getting their paychecks, but others can't, unquote. Mark Ferrant from the Canadian Juries Commission, which is a not profit organization that advocates and provides support to jurors, says it like this, quote, jury duty is our civic duty, but it's not your duty to suffer financially, unquote. Next to national news, and first to I guess what is a new beat in this country, the electric car battery and electric car manufacturing circuit. Nikkei Asia is reporting that Honda might build an EV plant in Canada. The unbylined article from the Canadian press references this report from Nikkei Asia and says that the plan could result in a total investment of $18.4 billion. It might be for both a vehicle plant and an EV battery plant. Of course, it doesn't say who would be making the investment of $18.4 billion, so let's keep that in mind. When asked for a comment, Honda didn't say anything, and neither did Industry Minister François-Philippe Champagne, although he did say that this, quote, speaks to the quality of workforce and the strength of our industry, unquote. He didn't mention, of course, the influx of temporary foreign workers who are expected to fill jobs at the planned EV battery plant in Windsor. Honda currently has a plant in Alliston, Ontario. Their first electric vehicle is hilariously called the Prologue. So watch for more details on this plant and whether or not Honda is able to squeeze the same kind of tens of billions of dollars in subsidies that Volkswagen and LG Stellantis have managed to get out of our tax dollars. Money that, of course, that could go to other things like, you know, healthcare or something. Next, it's been four years since flight PS 752 was downed by Iran's Islamic Guard Corps. The CBC's Brendan McDonald reports on the four-year anniversary of the downing of flight PS 752 by the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. and The families of the victims are trying to get Ottawa to designate the IRGC a terrorist organization. McDonald reminds us of the details, quote, PS752 was shot down shortly after taking off from Tehran on January 8, 2020, killing all 176 people on board, including 55 Canadian citizens and 30 Canadian permanent residents. Unquote. Actually, I just stuck that second Canadian in there. I, maybe it's obvious, but anyway. You might recall that the airliner was shot down less than a week after the U.S. coordinated assassination of Iranian General Qasem Soleimani. Hostilities between Iran and the U.S. rose after that, and Iran targeted U.S. soldiers located in Iraq. And then the pandemic happened and everything changed. Officially, Iran says that the plane was downed by an air defense unit and was misidentified as a hostile target, reports McDonald. Canadian officials said that proof was not strong enough to back up that claim. Now, the United States has designated this group a terrorist entity since 2019, but Canada has held back on designating the whole group as terrorists. Instead, in 2017, just the wing of the group that deals with extraterritorial matters has been designated a terrorist group. Now, that's not good enough for obviously the families of the victims of the plane crash, but it's also not good enough for a group of Democrat and Republican lawmakers. They wrote a letter to Justin Trudeau back in December asking him to designate the group a terrorist entity. Though McDonald's piece doesn't mention anything about the downing of PS752 as part of why this group of lawmakers wants Canada to designate the group a terrorist organization. Instead, they want to see the designation because the group is hostile to Israel, that they, quote, ideologically are committed to destroying Israel and undermining U.S.-Canadian security interests in the Middle East, unquote. An argument that might have worked better if it was made, I don't know, more than three months ago. McDonald cites a CIA report that says that as many as 50 percent of the recruits in the force are conscripted to serve. And that concerns Canadian lawmakers who argue that they are reluctant to label a group terrorist when there are so many people in the group that are serving there because they were conscripted. Now, buried at the end of this article is a pretty important piece of information. A national security law professor from Carleton named Leah West reminds readers, or maybe McDonald, I'm not sure who, that military units or parties involved in armed conflict cannot be designated a terrorist group as per Canadian law. They're formally excluded as being listed as terror entities. McDonald does a funny thing after quoting West saying that. He pivots back to a family member of a victim of the downed plane who's introduced early Earlier in the piece and who responds to this little factoid saying this quote if that's the case the law needs to change unquote here is a little failure of journalism it's the journalist's job to tell us whether or not it is indeed the case and i assume that west isn't incorrect here she's quoted as an expert and i'm assuming she's correct so why include that little nagging if It is the case, and therefore the family's call to list the group as a terrorist entity clashes with Canadian law. That probably should have been much further up in the article rather than leaving it to the end. Presumably, there is a logic for excluding military groups who are in active combat. I can imagine a couple of reasons for that, and it's too bad that that's not actually explored in this piece. And finally, two more Palestinian journalists have been killed in an Israeli airstrike in Gaza while trying to report on their own genocide. One of the two victims was Hamza al Dahdou. He was the son of Al Jazeera's Gaza bureau chief, Wael Dahdou. According to Hisham Zakut, an Al Jazeera correspondent, Hamza and a group of journalists were traveling in a vehicle northeast of Rafah, which was designated, a humanitarian zone, by the Israeli army. You've likely seen pictures of Hamza's father, Wael Dadu, already. He's already lost another son, along with his wife, daughter, and grandson, as they were killed in Israeli air raids that hit their house that they were sheltering in weeks ago. The two latest killings over the weekend brings the total number of journalists and media workers who have been confirmed dead since October 7th, up to 79. 72 of those are Palestinian, four Israeli, and three Lebanese. That is according to the Committee to Protect Journalists. The organization has said that there's a, quote, pattern of journalists in Gaza receiving threats and subsequently their family members being killed, unquote. Israel's attack on Gaza is the deadliest conflict for journalists since the committee was founded in 1981. And I'll just end with this. The silence that is coming from mainstream Canadian journalists is disgusting. If we think back to how Canadian journalists responded to Je suis Charlie, the Charlie Hebdo shootings, which were horrifying and an attack on free press, uh, there hasn't been anything even almost close to that in terms of collective outrage from the Canadian media establishment. It's unacceptable. And I guess, thank goodness, that's why we have independent media in this country, to actually say, wait a minute, this is horrifying. Those are your headlines for Monday, January 8th. I'm Nora. I am so, so glad to be back. Thank you to everyone who sent me messages over the last two weeks saying that you missed the show. Um, I didn't miss doing it. I have to be honest. I had some really great time off, <laughs> though now that I'm back, I'm very happy to be back. Look, Sandy and Nora off this week for sure. Might be off from a couple more weeks. Not sure yet. I'll let you know in the daily news and let you know online what's going on, but I'm back and I hope that you've been waiting to hear this episode. Today's episode was made with production assistance from Mary Newman. You are listening to this podcast at sanianor.com on the Real News Network podcast feed or anywhere you get your podcasts. I will talk to you tomorrow.